When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. All right, everyone, I want you to use your imagination. I want you to lie down on the floor. We're all like... <laughs> lying down on this drama floor. And I want you to imagine you're in a frying pan. What this written your frying pan and your freshly cracked egg. And I want you to crackle and pop like a fried egg. There was silence, and then there was a couple of people, including me, that were starting doing all this movement, right? And I lost myself in it. I was a fried egg. I was getting flipped. And when I opened my eyes, I looked up. Half the boys were just standing there looking at me again. What are you doing, son? Hello and welcome to Changes. It is Annie McManus here. Great to have you with us. My guest today, he's a global superstar. He's an award-winning actor, a film director, a producer, a DJ, a rapper, an entrepreneur, a podcaster, a UN Goodwill ambassador, a kickboxer, and the list goes on. I am so delighted to welcome to Changes, Idris Elba. Annie. Hello, Annie. Do you know what? I, honestly, I, I'm, I'm sweating from that list of stuff. I'm like, oh, 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 sweating. How does that make you feel when you hear that? It's just, it's ridiculous. <laughs> That is the the product of an overproductive imagination right there. Only child syndrome on crack. Can I say crack? I can't say crack. <laughs> yes, you can. You okay. can say whatever you want on this podcast. <laughs> well, listen, we should talk about the fact at the very top of this, because obviously people will be expecting us to speak about acting and your acting work. And because of the SAG after strike, we cannot, out of respect to the strikers. Um, but I did want to ask you if it's okay, Idris, about just the nature of that strike. And I suppose if you could give us some kind of context as to how the world has changed for actors with streaming and things like that. I mean, we know streaming has been totally detrimental to the movie, movie industry. It's kind mm. of killed the concept of a linear TV series. Mm. But how has it changed things for, for actors? What's happening is the tech companies that run streaming are not the guys that make the stuff they're not creatives it's a it's yeah. a tech industry and so their their position on the the rights of actors the rights of writers is viewed through a lens of tech it's viewed mm. through a lens of <clears throat> economy it it is a business you know most actors don't work all the time and for say 10 to 15 years of my career I was part of that you know I didn't work a lot yeah. And when I did work, I was really thankful for the system, my unions having residuals. So residual payment for something you've done, right? So I did something on BBC when I was, you know, 19. And when I was 26, I was still getting little checks in. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, so, and that happens when something's rerun or reshown or something yeah. like that, right? And Got it's you. rerun. It's probably mm. sold to a different country. Got you. And, you know, the unions were like, well, if you sell on this performance, the actors, the writers, you know, everyone involved should get a piece of the pie, right? Mm. And that was like, yes, please. Because, yeah. you know. I can pay my rent. Yeah. I can pay my rent. I also, I am part of the end product for life. That is me, my image, my performance. Yeah. And if you're selling it on and making money, therefore I should. The streamers don't work that way. The streamers are a very different model. They don't sell on their product. Once it's uh, a Netflix or an Apple or an Amazon, it, it's theirs for life. And therefore they pay now these sort of fees which bake in a sort of buyout system. A buyout is where they go, right, we'll take in consideration your payment for your work. And, you know, what we might get in residual, we'll give you a lump front, some front, uh, up front. Yeah. And um, it is another way of just not really keeping the contract with actors and writers in the way it has been done historically. Yeah. Film studios and streamers are looking at the numbers and going, well... I don't know if it makes sense. And not to, not to mention that the power of unions is a struggle now. You know, so many content makers, actors aren't part of a union and are putting out content and are oh. doing deals. So obviously if you're in a union and someone's being very successful and they're not in the union, it sort of, sort of waters down the power of the union. So mm. that's my and I'm going to say this nice and loud, this, that's my perspective on what's happening. Um, mm. It is a tragedy. The strike is one that is necessary to, to keep, I guess, the integrity of art alive because, yes, it is a living, but we do it from our souls. When you and I give our souls to the work that we do, it's not. Yeah. it's not like punching a bunch of numbers in a calculator. You're giving a part of yourself. Mm. And that should be sacred and treasured and remunerated properly. And mm. that's that's why we're striking. That's why the strike's on. And that's why it's very difficult. Um, How have you coped as a man who is, you know, as we know from the intro, incredibly busy and busy-minded? Mm. How have you coped without being able to do your main kind of day job as such? Well... <laughs> I have, as you've already noticed, I've got a few. Plenty of other stuff going on, Ali. I'm grand. <laughs> I have got a few um, fingers and a few pies. But that said, you know, um, I'm a filmmaker. Um, mm. Interestingly enough, though, because I'm English and I'm also part of the equity union, I can work here. I can. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, and there's just currently, it's we're all standing in solidarity as we can, but. At yeah. some point, you know, yes, my, my head's going to fall off my shoulders if I don't do something. And I've been contemplating directing, you know, some projects as a different way, which it does not affect or cross the lines okay. of the uh, strike. But, yeah, it's it's a tough one, you know. It's really tough. And I really feel for a lot of the the crews, the yeah. makeup teams. Yeah, they're the, out of work. The, the totally, caterers yeah. are completely, the drivers. I mean, it's a mm. struggle, you know. People are going to lose their shirts. Idris, can I ask you about your relationship to the word change? Um, that's what this conversation is kind of rooted in, that word. What are your reactions when I say that word? Change. It's weird because on one side of me, maybe the left side of my brain, I'm all for yeah. change. Like, 
you, you can't grow or create or experiment without the adoption of change. And so the left side of my brain is like, yes, change, but this one side of me, which I'm very much like, don't like change, don't, no, don't change stuff. No, 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 leave it. I like it just as it is. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a, that's a weird part of me. And I think that more applies to sort of my routines in life. You know what I mean? Like I've got habits that I've grown into, you know, just ways that I think or ways, sure. things that I do that definitely need change, need a little bit of a reprogramming. And so uh, my relationship with change is, yeah, so, you know, Mess or menos, as they say. Conflicting. A little, a little conflicting. A little, yeah, yeah. A little conflicting, yeah. I'm all yeah. for it, though. I think change is important. I think change necessary. I think it has... It, 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 it's growth, isn't it? It's continuation. It's momentum. Mm. It's mm. change. Mm. Mm. And also, you know, looking, reading your Wikipedia um, and, you know, just looking at the breadth of creative work you do like the breadth of it it's so vast and and it's not just like oh you make music and oh you act it's kind of within those fields the um, the huge variation of music you make and or you know acting you do like this idea of changing hats like being able to kind of go from one creative endeavor to the next to the next to the next or not even creative like you know going to do activism or philanthropy or whatever mm. you must be really good at that so i don't think i'm very good at everything i'm just good at going give it a go and give it your best go. Yeah. My interests, I've always been varied. As a child, I realized that, you know, my parents are West African. It was very much, you know, children should be seen and not heard. Be mm. quiet. Da, da, da. And as an only child, I spent a lot of time on my own. You know, my parents didn't have that much money. We, you know, we grew up in a on a, on a state in, in East London, um, little two-bedroom flat in Hackney. It was like, right, well, if you're going to play by yourself, what are you going to keep yourself interested in? Mm. And it just varied from cars to drawing to <laughs> to plasticine to climbing mm. to BMXs when they came out. I mean, I was just all over the place. I could ride a skateboard. I could break dance. I could <laughs> pull a wheelie for half a mile. Like, I just because I had this imagination and I had this time and I was self-driven as a young only child. So I don't, I don't feel, you know, people were saying, oh, you're different from others. I'm like, not really. I just mm. have this sort of different iOS, if you like. It's mm. different, same computer, different, <laughs> different operating system. Tell me about um, your mom and dad, please. Like, What kind of characters were they and how did they influence you, I suppose, as a kid? My parents, um, I was, I'm an only child and I think my parents wanted a bigger family, couldn't conceive a bigger family. So I was right. a lot to them, a lot. My dad was doting and kind. <laughs> he always tried to make me laugh. He's a really, really observant man, really observant. I could be sitting there and he'd be like, you want to go out, don't you? Or, or you know, he'll just be reading, sensing me all the time. My mum, um... You know, she's very, quite strict. She's a very strict woman. And because I was her only one, I think she was very protective. So she was very much, don't, mm. don't do that. Oh, don't jump, you know. Mm. <laughs> you know, even to this day, she's like, why are you doing so much? What? Why don't you just sit down for a second? Uh, but that comes from a place of protection. I was just very proud of 
what I've achieved, but she just doesn't like the idea that I'm always running around. Like every time I get on a plane, she's like, why? Why are you getting on a plane? Why? Because <laughs> I've got to go somewhere. Um, their marriage was, you know, it was a happy one for a long time. I guess they just wanted to go back to Africa at one junction and didn't. Wow. And with that comes, I guess, a sense of, you know, lost ambition, if you like. And, and then all of that sort of transferred onto me when I became, mm. you know, successful at what I was doing. And my parents did not think I'd be successful at acting. They were just like, that's not a job. Actors don't make money. Why are you trying to go for that? But um, I guess when they saw me for the first time in a play when I was probably 17 or whatever, 19, and they were like, oh, oh, yeah. oh. Yeah. I mean, they saw my school reports, which was like, he's very good at drama. He's very good at getting A pluses every time. Mm. But they never thought it was a job. Yeah. And um, I saw a, a quote in an interview where you talked about having chronic asthma as a kid. Mm. Um, and you said you were in and out of hospital a lot. I didn't realize that. Mm, yeah yeah um yeah before they really understood like you know how to control asthma um what yeah. the influences might have been my dad was a big smoker and I think that was a massive influence to okay um my asthma as well but yeah I was I was in and out of hospital quite a bit as a young man um and would these be long spells like weeks or no probably two weeks right got you you know, now they've got all the, the gizmos to help you breathe immediately. But then it was like, you know, scary. you got to watch. Yeah, it was so scary. For my mum, it was so scary. And it got to a point where actually I had to go to a school that was a bit more adapted to kids that had, you know, uh, medical mm. or medical medical needs. And that was a life, talk about change. That was a life changing. Was that a primary, yeah. primary school? Yeah, it was a primary school. Primary school. So yeah. tell me about well, that change. So I went from a primary school normal school where I was always in and out of the nurse's office or going to hospital and they just said to me, said to my mum, look, this is really difficult for all of us, you know, he's we're okay. scared that he's going to not get the care he needs in an emergency. So I went to a school called Stormont, which is still there. It's an amazing school for special needs. Mm. And, you know, for the most part, I'm fine running around, kicking ball, cool. you know, like good. And then the moment the, the asthma attack, I'd be done. So I went to this school and, you know, some of the kids had severe special needs so right across the, the spectrum. Um, and I was like, I, I shouldn't be here. No, nope, this this is wrong. But at the time, you know, it was it ended up being one of the most sort of giving, most incredible experiences of my life. Like, to this day, I feel, wow. Um, I got to go to this incredible school where they had such care and attention. The educators were amazing. The facilities were unbelievable. Yeah. And not to mention, like, I learned to play the drums and play the trumpet and, you know, wow. all in this school where they were just so happy to have a kid that was, quote-unquote, able-bodied, if you like, that mm. was encouraging to the other kids, you know? Yeah. I suddenly became the best friend of everyone and, and kids that were sort of in themselves would be in the classroom with me and feel and feel like they were just at school. They didn't have yeah. a special yeah. need because I was a boy that wasn't, you know, just changed my whole perception. Like I saw kids that could could barely, you know, speak, speak and sing songs, do paintings. And I was like, 
what? Like, it just changed my whole like, mindset. Like, to this day, you can't tell me we can't do anything. We're all so lucky. Yeah. And we don't realize it. It's only when you're in that situation where you're looking around and there were such heavy restrictions on some people's lives, yet they are going for it. A hundred percent. And just, man, it changed my life completely. I can imagine it changed your perspective as well of, you know, marginalized people. You can imagine it's very leveling when you're in that kind of situation. Yeah, completely. Mm. You just sort of you appreciate what you have yeah, and you appreciate and you're not looking over the fence of what you haven't got because what you have is enough and more than enough. You know? Did you settle in eventually? And I did, yeah. I did settle in. It was, it was an adjustment because, you know, all my friends from my other school, I was just all in the same area on a weekend. Yeah. I'd see them and... And then they'd see me getting on the special bus, you know, mm. to go to school. Mm. And eventually I did. And I sort of adjusted and was proud to go to an amazing school. <clears throat> I was yeah. proud of the education I got. My parents were. Um, I was proud of the friends I made there, you know. Mm. So you moved in childhood to Canning Town, am I right? Yeah. At yeah, yeah, what yeah. point was that that, that happened? I was probably 13. I just left Stormont and was going to a secondary school. I was still in Hackney. I went to yeah. Kingsland, which is the first secondary school. Uniform, big school, mixed. And, you know, my, my asthma had settled down and I was, you know, growing into myself. And then two months into that, my parents said, we're moving to Canning Town. I'm like, what? Oh, wow. where are we going? Where's Canning Town? I thought it was the other side of the world. Um, and my dad worked in Fords, so he, he, it was closer to Dagenham for him, mm. but the area was just tough, man. It was like nothing like Hackney. How? And it's just, Hackney was multicultural, you know, every ethnicity lived in Hackney. All my life I was there, all my life. And then I get to Canning Town and the, uh, even the architecture was different. It's just like bleak. It was like, you know, small small town, industrial town, you know. It was right next to Woolwich, the docks. It just felt like it just So was it kind of like rows of terrace houses? Yeah. Kind of Yeah. Rows as opposed to blocks and yeah. Blocks and green and there was no green. It was a concrete jungle. And mm. the people felt distant, you know? Mm. And Obviously, because, you know, Canning Town is a notorious national front hold. And I just walked into the hardest smack in the face of racism I'd ever. I, I just didn't know what to do with myself. I was like, what is going on here? Like, people would just call your names on the street. Just on oh the street. I was like, what? Why are we living here? Anyway, went to a school, secondary school. First thing I noticed, it was a boys' school. And I was a big lad and they just wanted to pick on me. <laughs> they just wanted to be like, oh, yeah, you're the new boy, yeah? And that school actually... And was, was the school diverse? Did it have black and brown kids in it? Like, Yeah, they, it did, yeah. It was, it was, okay. there was two boys' schools. There was Rokeby and there was Trinity. And this is where all the naughty boys got sent to. All of them. It's like the naughty boys got sent to Trinity because the teachers were super tough. It was a boys' school play no games. So I got sent there because proximity to the house my mum and dad bought. Oh, 
it was just like walking into the army. And as soon as I got there, I was like, where were the girls? I was like, there's no girls there, son. It's a boys' school. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I couldn't believe. I was like, what's going on? I can't believe this. Yeah. Anyway. Um, and, and why did they have it in for you, the pupils? I just, I guess, you know, you come from Hackney and you're, you've got swag. Right. You're from mm. Hackney, man. You know what I mean? And <laughs> I came to Channing Town and everyone was like, you're all right, mate. Chill out. All right, you've got you all right, Bob Marley, relax, you know, like all day long. Right. You right. think to yourself, what's going on here? And I also was, you know, overly developed at 12. I was, I was a big kid. I mm. was growing a moustache by 13, you know what I mean? And like, mm. I feel like all the kids in my age, the best fighter was immediately intimidated and wanted to make sure he could take me down a peg or two. And then the kids above were like, who's this geezer, you know? And I just had to, yeah, I, I, I had never had a fight. Well, I had one fight before that, but I had never had that sort of violence coming at me. And I had to really shape up really quickly. Zooming out on that school experience, did you stay there? Did you stick it out? And I stuck it and out. Was it, was it okay in the end? Did you manage to find a crew? My best friends to this day went to that school. Um, oh. I made friends. I met, Amazing. I met my drama teacher who put me on the path to my career. I stole a pair of double decks and started teaching on the radio yeah. on the radio from that school. <laughs> yeah. We've got a lot to thank Trinity, Trinity for was then. the one still. It ended up being all right. I mean, it was a massive amount of change, but it is a change that actually developed me to the man, I guess. Yeah. Can I ask, you know, when you did discover acting and you talk about this drama teacher, how how it felt? when you started acting for the first time and was it, was there a kind of sense of an epiphany? Was there a sense of coming home or maybe I'm just romanticizing it, you know? Again, you know, my imagination, I was used to talking to myself, you know, always to, I talk to myself, you know, playing games, cars, <laughs> imagination going through the roof, characters, songs, you know, uh, I just, I was used to it. And then suddenly there was this place where I was allowed to do it in public. And it turns out when you've done 10,000 hours of doing that, you, you're really good. And you're really good to a bunch of kids who just don't do that, right? So Yeah, but what about standing in front of people? Because that's different than being alone in a room. Yeah. Um, I, I still, to this day, have this sense. Again, I can, it's like an invisible cloak. I could just put it up yeah. and I'm like, nobody can even see me, even though it's for them. Like, I have it, had it. I never forget the first exercise she made us do. Miss McPhee, she goes, uh, all right, everyone, I want you to use your imagination. I want you to lie down on the floor. And we're all like, <laughs> lying down on this drama floor, you know. And, you know, it's a boys' school, so there was like wolf whistling at Miss McPhee. You know, she was attractive, so everyone was like, ah, we're lying down. <clears throat> I want you to imagine you're in a frying pan. What, miss? You're in your frying pan. And you're a freshly cracked egg. And I want you to crackle and pop like a fried egg. There was silence. And then there was a couple of people, including me, that were starting doing all this movement, right? Yeah. And 
I lost myself in it. I was a Friday. I was getting flipped. And uh, when I opened my eyes, I looked up. Half the boys were just standing there looking at me again. What are you doing, son? Like, I jumped all the way into it. And that's when I realized that I'm okay. And in fact, I think I transferred that energy to the kids that it was okay to do drama. Of course, yeah. It's okay to be silly. I definitely remember that moment. Wow, that's an incredible moment. I love (laughs) it. And then you you ended up at the National Youth Theatre, right? So that's, Mm. how long were you there and what did that do, I suppose, for young Idris? Um, yeah, so it was about the time when I was sort of crystallizing. I definitely want to be an actor. I was just leaving school. My drama teacher was, you know, she got me into a YTS scheme at the time to work at a theater. Mm. Um, you know, she, it was really encouraging. And then she was like, this is audition. You can get into the National Youth Music Theater and to be part of a professional play, even though you're not being paid for it. And they'd take you around the world and, and perform it. And it was a performance of um, Guys and Dolls. And so I auditioned and got it. And this is where the Princess Trust helped me because you had to, you know, spend, you had to pay some money towards your lodge and, you know, the right. teachings and all that. My parents couldn't afford it, but I managed to get 1500 quid out of the Princess Trust. And it changed my life. It completely changed my life. It put a professional lens on my dreams. I was like, what? This is a job? Are you kidding me? And then all these different people who do different parts, the costume, the the band, the lighting. I was like, what? I'm just completely wowed. This performance took me, we went to Japan to do it. We did it in front of, I think, the Queen, maybe, or mm-hmm. someone from the royal family. We went to wow. America to perform it. I mean, it really changed me. It was like, What? I'm an actor. This is what I'm doing for a living. It was amazing. And then from that point, you know, you know, you finish school, you do something like that, and then what do you do? So I ended up in college. But at the same time, this is where my DJing and life started happening. You know, I was realizing, yo, I can, you know what I mean? I was, I was just growing into a man at that point. So I, mm. <laughs> I had a car. I was on pirate radio. I was DJing in clubs. Much to my mum was like, what? mind blowing like like you're too young for all of this I was only 16 17 but at the crossroad between acting and being a DJ I wanted to be I wanted to be on the radio I wanted to be a radio personality so I did pirate radio and then this junction came when I was in college and Mm -hmm. I, I remember going to college and you know, I realized that this is a real profession and that you have to really work at it. And so I did this two-year course that really did everything, bit of dancing, bit of directing. And it was at that junction that I realized this is what I really, really want to do. And yeah. yeah. And you were able to just, you had your path. I did. It was there, set for me. (laughs) Do you remember what it's like being in your 20s? I sometimes look back at that period of my life and laugh just as much as I cringe. If you do the same, then you've got to watch Queenie, the new original series on Hulu. Who is Queenie? Queenie is a 20-something year old living in London. She's facing all the firsts. First major heartbreak, first shitty apartment and soul-sucking job, first therapy session to work through those mommy issues. Can she turn her quarter-life crisis into a revolution? Maybe. Will she make some questionable decisions along the way? Definitely. The new series Queenie is now streaming on Hulu. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Idris, can I ask about, you know, you talk about the change as a child. Looking at your adult life, what would you say was kind of the biggest, one of the biggest changes you've been through? My daughter, when she was born, that was... How old were you? I was 29, 28, 29. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a massive change for me. How did it change your life? Grounded me massively. Um... Mm. Made me really, really, really work hard at my career. I mean, really, like prior to my daughter coming, I had a two or three years really tough in New York when I was living. Right. I was homeless, I was DJing, I was bouncing, I was selling drugs, I was doing everything I could just to survive. In New York? In New York. Yeah. And uh, I was auditioning the whole time, but I wasn't getting anything. And then, you know, I was married. I got married quite young. And my wife and I went for just a horrible bad time all during the pregnancy, all during that whole time where we didn't last. And our daughter didn't fix it. So it was just a really horrible time. So when she came, I looked her in the eyes. I was like, I've got to buck up. As if either I leave New York and come home and just get a job, put some food on the table, or I fucking work as an actor, yeah. chosen. And that's where I got the wire. And, and it was the hardest audition period I ever had. It was when I really, really, really focused in. And that changed my life completely, you know. Um, but but being a parent as well, you know, um, just you know, I, I can reflect quite easily on my my parenthood. I mean, my me as a child, and yeah. you know, I've got good and bad memories growing up from my parents' parenting. But my consciousness about being a parent was like and I wanted to be the best kind of dad you could be even though the situation wasn't great between mom and me it was just I needed to be there for this kid and um yeah talk about you know when I was saying earlier you know there's decision route paths that your brain has and that you stick to I had to airlift all of those out in order to be a dad and that was a big change you have three kids? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, what have you learned about fatherhood as your kids have grown up and, you know, the initial change that fatherhood brings? But I suppose one thing I learned about being a parent is that it never stops. Kids don't stop changing <laughs> and they don't stop changing you um, mm. in the different, like, you know, phases of their growth. So, yeah, I suppose what, you know, what have you learned about being a father, being a parent? It's expensive. It's fucking. <laughs> oh no! Um, I um, yeah. I, I think I learn a lot about Idris trying mm. to be a dad. Mm. I learn a lot. Like, 
I always put myself in my kids' eyes and wonder what they see. My youngest is a lovely, sensitive soul, and we adore each other, and I'm always wondering what he sees, and I'm always trying to adjust what he sees. Not to be fake, but to be a great influence for him, mm. a great memory when I'm gone. My old man did this one time. I just want that's what I, I really want to. Yeah. So I'm always adjusting myself, and that's, that's definitely something I've um, learned from being a parent. And have you observed what parts of your parents are, are in you as a parent? Like this yeah. is a thing you do subconsciously, isn't it? You suddenly realize, oh my God, I sound like my mom. Yeah. Or, oh my God, you know. Yeah. Totally. So which bits have, have kind of trickled down, I suppose, into the way that you parent? Well, I think from my dad's side, um, I'm goofy. I yeah. want to, I'm, I'm goofy. <laughs> I want them to laugh and be like, this guy's serious. Because my dad passed 10 years ago. My fondest memories are just him making me laugh making other people laugh. He's such an intelligent man. And I just, I just want my kids to have that similar sort of outlook on me. My mum's side, there's a definite sort of like, I wouldn't say strictness, but I have a, I have a little tolerance for sort of bad behavior. Mm. My tolerance for it is not good. And you need to be tolerant of bad behavior because it's not, bad behavior it's just some things are not being explained some things are not quite understood by kids yet yeah. and so you I was told you're bad you're bad and I can feel myself being like that around my kids sometimes and I, I try to adjust that so much mm. my mom is very organized is very organized like right. five o'clock is five o'clock and that's that's a good thing that I have. I, something that I pride on. I haven't always been good at it, but I've always worked hard to impress my mum with being organised. Um, I watched your speech that you made in Parliament. I was feeling for you because mm. 30 minutes you spoke in Parliament about diversity in media and films. And you talked a lot about change in that speech. And you kind of focus on this idea, you know, as opposed to pinpointing, you know, there's not enough black people in films. It was more about people's mindsets and how you, we needed a diversity in thinking. And I wondered if you had a moment in your life where you had to change your mindset in order to progress, like where something happened where you're like, I have to fucking change how I think or how I approach myself. I, I've been in, in therapy for mm, the last, I'd say, about a year now. Right, me too. I've just started. Really, yeah. It's a lot, right? It's a lot. It's a lot. It's just that bit at the start where they don't say anything, <laughs> and as I, my whole entire life has been filling, filling silence. Filling the silence. I'm a radio DJ, so I'm just like, blah, blah, blah. I'm like it's just I, I go in feeling stressed about the silence. I was like, is this right? I, I don't feel like I should be stressed about anyway. Yeah, I'm stressed about go therapy is stressing me out. That's just the beginning part because I okay. felt I felt Only the same. Just pick it out. You do, yeah, and. It's probably good to go through that because you, 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 once you start getting comfortable with the silences, that's where the magic starts to happen. That's where right. the connectivity roots of, of like, you know, things that you want to change start to change because you're like, it's okay to be silent while I think about what I'm about to say next. And, you know, that's definitely 
in my therapy, I've been thinking a lot about changing, almost to the point of neuro neuropaths being mm. changed and shifting. Mm. And it's not because I don't like myself or anything like that. It's just that I have some unhealthy habits that have just really formed. And they, you know, <clears throat> I work in an industry that I'm rewarded for those unhealthy habits. I'm rewarded for that, you know whether it's to be selfish or to be, I'm a workaholic. I'm an absolute workaholic. And that isn't great for life generally. Nothing that's too extreme is good. Everything needs balance. But I'm rewarded massively to be a workaholic to someone that can go, oh, I'm not going to see my family for six months. I'm in there grinding and make a new family and then leave them, you know, those are pathways that I had to be like, oh, I've got, I've got an adjust, I've got to adjust, got to adjust. So I've been thinking about this a lot, and oddly enough, you know, a lot of our childhood is really at the root of it. Even though we grow into an adult, the, the, the parts that grow are the physicality of us, but the mindset remains childlike for a long time. You grow, it changes because your experiences mm-hmm. changes, but. Once you've learned as a kid that, you know, someone yells at you and you, you ship that, that that's going to be your footprint. And it takes, yeah. takes time and nurture to get that out as a thing. So, yeah, um, there's multiple things that I've definitely had to shift. And I've been thinking a bit and cognitive of, yeah. of the shifts that I have to make. Yeah. And can you see a, a time in the future where you will work less? Or is it already happening? Um, work less. <laughs> Come on. Ernie. It's this thing, is it? Rest is radical. This idea of kind of, you know, of, of like seeing rest as productive. This is, I'm tr- I'm trying to do that myself at the moment. Like allowing rest to be something that, and not rest like sitting on your arse, but mm. rest like going for a long swim or, you know, do, you know, something mm. that isn't like, mm. something that is for you and relaxing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I definitely want to adopt that but the thing is that the things that are make me relaxed are end up being work you know this is my studio in my house and I just love being in here I'll open that laptop and be like I don't know what to make today and today it'll come out like this and one like that and that I'm exhilarated by that I'm also so relaxed by it I just I could have worked 10 days on a film underwater sequences holding my breath for six minutes and come back and sit in here and be like more so than sitting on the sofa watching the TV with the family, which is bad, right? And this is the part where I've got to sort of normalise, if you like, what makes me relaxed. Mm. Can't be all work. What is the change you'd still like to make for your life moving forwards? The change I'd like to make is to take a deep breath when I have nothing to do and not feel anxious about it. Just sit still and be okay with that. And I know that when I was a kid, sitting still was boredom. It was because I was told off. It was because I've got no one to play with as I'm an only child. And, and 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 it just fills me with anxiety. I gotta do something. I gotta do something. I gotta make something. I gotta build something. I gotta. 
And I've brought that into my adulthood. And as I said, you know, it's rewarded me lovely, but I've got to chill sometimes. I've got to just be able to sit still and not do much. And I think my family, my wife, my kids, we all are a bit like me, scattered, running around, want to do a million things. And I think that's the change I'd like to offer now, if I could. You mentioned a couple of times in this conversation about the work that you do, taking little bits of you and, you know, you're putting little bits of you out in the world, acting. If you think about the amount of films and movies you read, that's a lot of little bits of you out in the world. <laughs> Similarly with music, how do you keep yourself to yourself when, when you're putting so much of yourself out all the time as part of your job, as part of your existence? How do you retain the bits of you that are the most important? I guess I try to um, stay out of the the loop a bit. That's that's one thing that like I always try and teach younger actors to just remember that you're acting and you're being paid for it. Outside of that, they're not paying you to be you. So be you in private. Just enjoy you, mm. and it will make your performances resonate even more because they can't see you. It's always worked for me, you know, that the more I do things in my real life that enrich me, the better I am as an actor. Mm -hmm. Does your mommy still worry about you, Idris? Oh, yeah. I think she texted me this morning and said, have you brushed your teeth? Yes. <laughs> Idris Alba, thank you so, so much. You're welcome, Annie. It's really good speaking to you. Thanks for that. Do please rate, review and subscribe to Changes. It is so appreciated. And if you fancy sharing it on social media too, that would be amazing. The more people we can get listening to these episodes, the better we want to tell our stories far and wide. Changes is produced by Louise Mason through DIN Productions. Thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.